Well, today we are beginning a journey through the story and the book known as Exodus. And we're going to spend a better part of all of 2019 as well as into 2020, better part of 18 months, walking through uh, the book, the biblical book known as Exodus and the story known as Exodus. So I just want to start with a question, why would we take 18 months uh, to walk through one book, 18 months to walk through one story? Well, this past fall, I was uh, traveling to a conference in Atlanta, and as I was walking through the uh, Atlanta airport, uh, it wasn't necessarily a new observation that I made, but as I was just doing what I enjoy doing, people watching, uh, I just noticed that every single person that was in the airport uh, was just walking around with luggage. Every single person. Some people had really fancy bags that they were pulling behind or pulling alongside. Some people had their luggage just as backpacks or just shoulder straps that every single person that I saw had luggage. Now, you would obviously expect that uh, at an airport, but the thing that just struck me in a new way uh, was this idea, uh, the imagery that all of us are, at some level, we carry luggage that is hindering our walk with God. Uh, again, this is just an image that I had, but as I began praying through, God, where do you want us to go as we head into 2019, into 2020? I couldn't shake this image, this picture that people are carrying bags. And the contents that people are carrying in their bags, metaphorically speaking, are going to certainly vary from person to person. But as I was thinking through just this idea that we have luggage that we are carrying or pulling behind us, I wonder if some of what's filling your luggage, for some, it might just be shame and regret. For some, as you think through the contents of what you might have in your bag is fear or anxiety or maybe anger or bitterness. For some, the contents of the luggage, the bags that you might be carrying or pulling behind you might be different addictions that you have. Whether it's a food addiction, whether it's a spending addiction, whether it's something like pornography or alcohol or drug addiction. For some, the content of your bag might just be a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and disappointment over things that have happened to you or maybe things that haven't happened to you that have caused disappointment. For some, it just might be suffering. That's the bag that you've been carrying around for maybe a long time. And maybe for others, it's just as simple but as powerful, the content of lies, lies that you've believed about God, lies that you've believed about yourself, lies that you maybe have believed about other people. Again, what's in our luggage is going to vary from person to person, but what's true for many, if not most, is that we're carrying around things that are weighing us down and holding us back from actually experiencing and encountering all that God actually has for us in friendship, relationship with Him. And what we're carrying around is actually impacting or influencing us in ways that we might not even actually realize. What I mean by that is what we're carrying around is actually shaping how we think about God, how we see God. It's shaping or influencing how we think about ourselves or how we see ourselves, and it's also shaping, impacting, influencing how we think about, engage, interact with the world around us. For example, if some of you or maybe the content of your bag would be considered shame and regret over things that you've done or maybe haven't done, and there's regret because of that, there's shame because of that, well, you're going to do the best that you can to avoid God. 
you're going to do the best that you can to hide from God. If some of you might be carrying around things like anxiety or worry or fear, well, in time, if you're carrying that, that bag around of anxiety, fear, worry, you're going to grow exhausted from trying to control everything, every situation, every circumstance, every relationship. And if some of you might just be carrying the bag of anger or the bag of bitterness, well, in time, what's going to happen is you're going to have a very difficult time building meaningful relationships with people around you because you just can't trust anyone because the bag behind you that you've been carrying for a long time is just anger and bitterness. And I think for many, we've been carrying the same luggage for so long that we've just somehow accepted this is just the way it is. This is just what has become normal. I've been carrying this bag, pulling this bag for so long, this is my new normal. So again, this is just the imagery here, but if you were to think about a bag that you're carrying or a bag that you're pulling behind you, what would be in it? What would be maybe one or maybe a few things that would be hindering or holding you back from actually experiencing God and enjoying all that God would have for you. Now, why are we going through Exodus? What is it about the book and the story of Exodus? And the one word that we're going to come back to over and over again and again over these next 18 months is going to be this word freedom. Freedom. The book itself and the story of Exodus is eternally important and incredibly relevant to where we are today because we meet God in the story of Exodus. We get to know who God is and what God is like, namely, we get to see His redemptive work and we get to see His redemptive power in the book and in the story of Exodus. Exodus is a story and a book about God setting people free from the bondage that they were in. So as we walk through the stories, we walk through this event known as the Exodus, we're going to see a God who cares, a God who is powerful, a God who redeems, a God who rescues, a God who can actually save. But I want to be as clear as I can when we start this story and look at this book called Exodus, God does not set a people free just so you and I can be free. God doesn't just set us free so we don't have to carry the luggage or things that we might be in bondage to just so we can be free for freedom's sake. We are freed from something for something. We are freed from something for something. So the question obviously is, well, what have we been freed for? What does Exodus, the book and the story, tell us that we've been freed for? And it's this, we're freed to worship and to witness. Now, I know when we hear the word worship, we immediately think of music, we think of songs, uh, and that's certainly part of it. But the book of Exodus and the event known as the Exodus is not just so people would sing songs every day, but that people would worship God, honor God, glorify God in all areas, aspects of their life. That once we see and know and experience and encounter God, we would be led to live lives that just say, how could we not but worship you? And that we would also serve as a witness of this is who God is, this is what God is like, and this is what God has done. So we're not free just so we're free. We're free that we might worship and that we might be a witness. So whether you're walking around uh, this morning with one or maybe multiple things in a bag that you've been carrying, 
what happens is our thoughts often get fixated on the very things that we are carrying or pulling around behind us. And when our thoughts are fixated on what is in the luggage that we're carrying, well, our worship of God and our participation in God's redemptive mission is going to be ultimately hindered. Exodus, it just means exit or departure. And so the book and the event that we enter into today is a story of departure from that which someone, people were in bondage to in order that they might be free, free to actually worship God and free to be part of witnessing to God's redemptive work. Now, I've already asked you the question of, if you have a bag, what is it that's in the bag? What are you pulling or carrying around? I want to ask the follow-up to that question is this, can you actually envision a life where you're finally free from the luggage that you've been carrying around? Whatever is in the luggage, can you actually envision a life, a scenario where you would be free from what you have been carrying or pulling around, whether it's for months, years, if not decades? And I don't mean just like partial freedom where you kind of, you know, you get excited maybe at a church service, and you're like, I'm putting this bag down, I'm not going to pick it back up, only to pick up that bag two hours later. I, I mean fully free, where the luggage, the bags, and the contents that have been in that, you are fully free from those things. Can you ever envision that actually becoming your norm and your reality? I'm guessing, if we're honest, a lot of us would say, Man, Michael, if you knew what I've been carrying in my bag, it is just so big. I cannot envision a scenario where I am free from the guilt or the shame or the anger or the bitterness or the disappointment or the suffering or the hurt or the anxiety and fear. Well, one of the things as we turn to chapter 1 of Exodus, we're introduced to a nation called Israel, and they are in bondage or they are in slavery to the most powerful man on the planet who's ruling and reigning over the most powerful nation on the planet, the nation of Egypt. And so what I take great hope in as we begin this story is everyone that was in bondage to the most powerful man, most powerful nation, thought to themselves, he's invincible. This nation is invincible, and this person and this nation is absolutely undefeatable. And this is where we meet God in the story of Exodus. This is Exodus chapter 1. I'm going to read the first seven verses. It says this, there are, These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is Jacob, Jacob's sons here, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishkar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. In time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending the entire generation. But the descendants, the Israelites, uh, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly, they became extremely powerful and filled the land." Now, as we see just in these first few verses of Exodus, we find ourselves actually already in the midst or the middle of a story. And so if you're going to understand the story in the book of Exodus, we must remember that Exodus is actually connected to Genesis. 
meaning Exodus continues the story that ultimately began in the very first book of the Bible known as Genesis. Now, if you were to go back all the way to Genesis chapter 12, we see that God placed a call on one individual's life, and that individual's name was Abram. And God called that individual and said, I'm setting you apart to begin a new nation, a new people. And so God called this one person, Abram, to start a new people, a new nation, and he coupled that call with a promise. And in Genesis 12, it says this, I will make you, Abram, into a great nation. And so that we see when we come to uh, Exodus chapter 1, we see that we meet Israel in Egypt, and they have already become that great, powerful nation that God said that they would become in time. Now, here's my question. How did Israel get from where they were, which was not anywhere geographically located to where Egypt is, how did they get in the land of Egypt? How did Israel actually land in Egypt? And I'll answer this question with a story. And the story of how they got there, it began with a father uh, named Jacob. And Jacob uh, had 12 sons. And Jacob, this family was somewhat of a dysfunctional family. Jacob, the father of these 12 sons, had a favored son. And one day, he decided to give his favored son, Joseph, a gift, a gift that just angered his brothers because the gift of this coat reminded his brothers, his older brothers, that Joseph is clearly the favorite child. And we see that Joseph uh, not only was the favored child, but Joseph decided to tell his brothers and his parents about some dreams that he had had. And the dreams that Joseph had were dreams where all members of his family were bowing down before Joseph. Now, you can imagine if you're an older child, I'm the youngest of five, if I were to gather my family and said, hey, I had a dream, and all of you were going to be bowing down to me. That probably would not go well with my older brother and my three sisters. It didn't go well for Joseph either. And so they said, we want to get rid of him. We can't kill him because that would not be good. So let's just sell him into slavery. And so they meet some slave traders who, take, who just happen to take Joseph to the nation of Israel. Now, in the providence, or nation of Egypt, I'm sorry, in the providence of God, this young brother named Joseph just happened to, in time, rise to be the second most powerful person in the nation of Egypt, second to Pharaoh himself. Now, that's just step one of how Israel got into the land of Egypt. It started first with Joseph. But phase two, or step two, well, over a period of 20 years of Joseph being in the nation of Egypt, there was a famine that had struck the known world, meaning where Jake, uh, Joseph's brothers were still living. You want to take a guess of the only place that the famine had not impacted was the nation of Egypt. And so his brothers said, hey, we're going to die in the land where we are. Let's go to Egypt where there is food so we can bring back food for our family and our people and we can survive. Well, Joseph's brothers head to Egypt unbeknownst to them that their brother, Joseph, is now second in command in charge of all of Egypt. Talk about an awkward family reunion here when the brothers finally realize that Joseph, the one that they sold into slavery, is now in charge of them. 
Well, Joseph extends an incredible amount of grace to his brothers. They reunite. Joseph assures them that all is well. And then Joseph says, hey, is my father Jacob, is he still alive? And they say, yeah, our dad is still alive. And Joseph says, send for my father Jacob so he can be here with all of our family in Egypt and I can provide for them so that they do not die because of this famine. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. God appears to Joseph's father. Remember, Joseph's father is Jacob, and he's the grandson of Abraham. And it says this is what happened between God and Jacob in Genesis 46. I am God, the God of your father. The voice said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make your family into a great nation. So if you want to know... How did Israel land in Egypt? Yes, there was a step where Joseph was sold into slavery, landed in Egypt. There was a step where there was a famine that caused everyone to go from where they were to uh, be in Egypt. But if you really want to know, how did they get there? God told them specifically to go to the land of Egypt. And when they arrived, they were a people that prospered. And when I mean prospered, they grew in numbers. They grew to be a powerful people and a powerful nation, but in time, things went from going really, really, really well to really, really, really poor. And we pick up the rest of the story in Genesis, or Exodus chapter 1, starting verse 8. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight uh, against us. Then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves, and they appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramsey and supply centers for their king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all of their work in the fields, and they were ruthless in all of their demands." Now, when it says in this text here that this new Pharaoh did not remember Joseph, does not know anything about Joseph, that does not mean that he had never actually heard of Joseph. Joseph would have been a national hero in Egypt because he also saved Egypt from the famine that had struck the the known world at the time. What the text is actually saying is this new, very insecure Pharaoh that had risen to power made the decision, I'm not going to show loyalty to Jacob and, or to Joseph and his family any longer. They had found favor in the nation of Egypt, but now the decision shifted. I'm no longer going to show loyalty or favor to these people. So they once were now a blessed people, they've now become a people that needed to be contained or controlled by this Pharaoh. And the way that he chose to control them, contain them, was through brutal and violent enslavement. Now here, to me, 
is the really hard question for us this morning in Exodus chapter 1. If God knew that Jacob's family would become a great and powerful people while in Egypt and that they would in time become enslaved in Egypt, then why did he send them there in the first place? If God knew this was going to happen, that they would be blessed and they would become this powerful nation, but in time they would become enslaved to brutal slave drivers in Egypt, why on earth did God send them there in the first place? And if you're wondering, well, gosh, maybe, maybe they didn't know. Maybe God didn't know this was going to actually happen. Well, I want to be clear because remember, Exodus is the continuing story of what happened in Genesis. And we learn in Genesis that when God initially called Abram and said, hey, I'm setting you aside to begin a new people known as the nation of Israel, and I'm making a promise to you, one of the things that God told Abram in Genesis 15 is this, then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land and they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. So God clearly knew what was going to happen to these people once they landed in Egypt. Now, I don't know if this is a question that you've wrestled with recently, but I can promise you at some point in your life because all humans have wrestled with this question. It's the question of why. God, why do you allow suffering? God, why do you, if you can do something about it, if you're God and you're good and you're powerful, then God, why can't you stop this from actually happening? Why don't you stop suffering? And maybe even more personal, God, if you knew this was going to happen, why did you send me into that in the first place? Why did you permit, why did you allow that path, that journey to become my story and my reality? Now, that's a powerful question, that's a pertinent question, that's a raw and a very real question, but the presupposition of that question is the assumption that we make is that the most loving thing that God could do for you, for me, for His people would be to protect us from any suffering or hardship from ever happening in our lives. Behind the question of why, and I want to be clear, it is a good question. It's an important question. But behind that question is the assumption that a loving God would never allow suffering to come to me, to our friends, to our family. He would never allow a storm or trial or hardship to become our reality. Well, as we are going to journey through Exodus, uh, that assumption is going to be challenged. And I just want to finish uh, our time this morning by looking very quickly at, well, how does God use suffering in our lives to free us from the things that often hinder us from actually experiencing and encountering God, walking with God and worship of God and witness of God? How does God use the suffering that happens in our life? How does He use suffering to accomplish something better, something more beautiful, our worship and our witness? I'll share with you two quick things. Number one would be this. Suffering helps us see our need for a Savior. There's something within suffering that reminds us and helps us to see our need for a Savior. If you remember step one of how Israel landed in Egypt, step one was Joseph, mistreated by his brothers, left for dead, sold into slavery. 
Well, when Joseph and his brothers reunite, and remember, Joseph had suffered greatly at the hands of his brothers. This is what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Joseph says, you were the cause of my suffering. You intended evil in my life, but God flipped it on its head. And God used what you intended for evil, he used it actually not only for my good, but the good of many people, the saving, the salvation of many people. Suffering has a way of reminding us of our need for salvation, thus our need to cry out to God for a Savior. And not just for our sake, but for the sake of many, those around us. I think without suffering, we have a way of just naturally setting in, growing comfortable, and pursuing all that would protect and promote our comfort from never being hindered or disrupted or derailed. And this is not to say that Joseph's suffering or Israel's bondage was easy. It talks about brutal violence of enslavement, but it was through their suffering that they finally began to cry out to God for a Savior. Now, I asked you before what might be in the contents of the bags, the luggage that you're pulling or carrying with you today. And I can all but promise you that whatever is in there today, no matter how hard it is or whatever it might be, that God is going to use that to get you to a place to cry out to Him. This is not easy, but suffering is used by God, not caused by God, used by God to get us to a point to cry out for a Savior. The second thing I'd share with you is this. Suffering reminds us that this is not our home. Suffering has a way of reminding us this is not all that God has for us. God never intended Egypt to become the promised land for Israel. He never intended Egypt to become the landing place, the the final resting place or home for his people. So I wonder, if God had not allowed suffering to take place, would the Israelites ever have desired to even leave Egypt? See, I believe that God used suffering as a way to help preserve, no, this is what your true identity is as the people of God, not the people of Egypt. Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor, preacher, theologian, author, said this, in all probability, if they had been left to themselves, they would have been melted and absorbed into the Egyptian race and lost their identity as God's special people. They were content to be in Egypt and they were quite willing to be Egyptianized. When I read that, I just wonder for how many of us, how many of us have become Americanized? We've become absorbed into the American race, meaning our values and our vision for life and what our lives should look like is really no different than those around us that have no idea who God actually is. See, the vision and the value of God for you and for me for all of our lives is that we would be men and women who are set aside to worship Him in all that we do. That we are men and women who know Him and are set aside to be a witness of this is who God is. This is what God is like. This is what God has done. And I believe that God uses trouble along the way. He uses, that means He can redeem suffering that happens in our life to remind us of our true identity 
and to remind us as people of God, but to remind us that this ultimately is not our home. This is a really big question that we're going to continue on into these next few weeks. Uh, And as we walk through the story of Exodus, we're going to be walking through multiple stories, and we're starting with what we'll call the story of hope. The story of hope. Can we actually find hope in the midst of affliction, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of storms and trials? Can we actually find hope? Now, if you remember, uh, there was a turning point in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, when it says this new Pharaoh, he forgot who Joseph was. He forgot who the people of God were. And one of the things that I take great confidence and have great hope in is this truth that God will never forget you. The world and those around you might forget you, might forget who you are and what you're going through and what you're carrying and what you're pulling, but God will never forget you because it's in the midst of suffering that we start to wonder, is there hope? And we begin to cry out, God, Will you provide salvation in this? 